on the far side. Here he is now, looking to maybe let the shot go. He steered past the keeper, into the left-hand corner, and Tilly, shaching for him, he's doubled his money and registered his second, the Don's second this evening. Cross comes in from the left-hand side, it goes beyond Davison. Bugel on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a brilliant finish! finish it's in towards McLean oh he's found the second goal for the Dawns it's absolutely incredible oh it's a brilliant save from Nick Zanev tipped it wide just when it was destined for the top right hand corner and it comes from Tilly in towards the edge of the six yard box Post going up and now it is headed in and it is Ryan Johnson Pell leaping oh and it's his first touch of the ball and he's made it 2-0 Tillian, what a nonchalant bit of control as well, up against Milsom. Tillian now with a shot past the keeper! Oh, it's a superb goal! Hi guys, it's Bassi here. Hi, I'm Omar Bagil. Hi, I'm Terry Skibberton. Hi, I'm Hussein Biller. Hi, Bezo here. All right, lads. I'm Ali Hamadi. Hello, I'm Johnny Jackson, and you are listening to the official AFC Wimbledon podcast. Come on, you dons! Hello, everybody. Welcome along to the official AFC Wimbledon podcast with me, Aaron Paul. What a cracker! of an episode we have in store for you this week. In fact, it's so good that we've had to split it into two. Joining me is a Dons legend, someone who featured in five seasons for the club, scoring 37 Premier League goals for us. This man was also an African Cup of Nations winner with Nigeria in 1994. Ladies and gentlemen, you know exactly who I am talking about. The Chief has returned. It's time for part one of our chat with Efan Koku. Efan, welcome to Plough Lane. It's great to have you here with us. Um, what's new? How are you? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Long overdue. I've heard about you. And you guys are only just inviting me along for the first time. Um, I'm good, though. I'm good. I'm still, um, I'm still around. You know, still, I'm still getting my name and face here and there working in the media, which is, is good fun. I love it. You're the first Wimbledon FC legend we've had on the official club podcast. Oh, oh. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm honoured. What, what a character yeah. to have. I'll um, tell the boys. Yeah, make sure we're on a little do. group chat, so I'll let them know. Spread the news. Um, <laughs> let's get straight into it. How mm. does a boy from Manchester end up at Gander Green Lane? <laughs> yeah, um, pretty straightforward, but um, a little bit long and twisted in a way. No, that's a, no, there's a contradiction, isn't it? I said it was straightforward to start with, didn't I? So I was born in Manchester, raised in Liverpool, then travelled to Nigeria when I was 16, was there for four years. Came back to London where the family was, or most of them were, and are still. Um, local team was Sutton United. I was living in Mitcham, so there you go. It was a quick bus ride from more than up to up to Sutton. Was Gander Green Lane pretty much the same then? <laughs> yeah, it's not changed. Have you seen the ground? Oh, I have. <laughs> yeah. I've been there many times. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah, it's pretty much the same. You know, it didn't seem to be much improvement for about 35 years. I don't know what they've done recently. I've not been for about five years. Um, and yeah, I just I just called one day because I I'd not played football for years. I was newly back from Nigeria and wanted to play and I called Tooting and Mitchum and no one answered the phone pre-season. So the next one down the list in the old, um, whatever it was then, we used to look up football clubs or whatever. It was a book then, not on the internet. Next one was Sutton United. I've no, I had no clue. I had no clue where Sutton was. I'd never been there before, but that was the next one picked up and, and Barry Williams answered the phone. Good afternoon, Sutton United. Can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm so-and-so. But I want to come up. Said, oh, lovely son. You know, it'd be nice to see you. Come now, we train Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then we play, well, it was pre-season there, so we trained Tuesday and Thursdays at six o'clock sharp, kind of, you know. So Barry was an old um, English school teacher, very prompt, very polite, 
And that was it. I rocked up there, started training, and I was playing a few months later. I, I said to Omar Bagheel when he signed our, our number 18, mm. how does it feel to, to come to a club with a proper ground? Because this, I mean, you look up behind <laughs> you, it is a proper ground, yeah. isn't it? Um, I mean, I know you didn't play at Plough Lane, but, but to see the club back in, in Merton, to see the club back in its back home, it's, it's huge. This is great, great for the community. And, you know, football is a lifeblood of the community. Uh, important, important fabric. So when... When your football club moves, your team moves, I think, you know, for a lot of real fans, real diehard fans, you know, they feel as if part of their soul has been ripped out. So going to Sellers was bad enough. Um, so then having a club disbanded and going to that other part of the country that we won't even mention <laughs> was even worse. So eventually, you know, you know, to be able to get back for the fans and lots of local fans, as you guys know, if, if you've if supported the club for years... You know, you get to see a lot of the faces out on a regular basis. Some of you used to come to the training ground, so, you know, you would see faces, or I saw faces, that were at Selhurst, Then you know, to see them back was fantastic. So that's for me as an ex-player who spent only five years here. So for them who spent a lifetime, I can only imagine what it means, you know, to them and their families. Back to your career, mm-hmm. uh, moves to Bournemouth and Norwich following. You, you get your first taste of, of football league football and then Premier League football, and, and you scored goals. What a rise! Yeah, it was. Um, I was. I was expecting it because I, I always knew that I could do it. I started very late as a pro. Turned pro. Well, I signed at twenty-two, but I actually made my pro debut at twenty-three. So that's almost half a career gone. You know, you know, some people are starting at sixteen, seventeen in their first team. So I was playing catch-up, and the first few years were tough because I was just getting used to pro football and to full-time training, which was hard. So I was injured quite a lot at Bournemouth. So in truth, in three years, I, only, I think I played about 72, 73 games, which is nothing really. I mean, in the lower divisions, as you guys know, that's a season and a half, isn't it? So that was a season and a half that I didn't play as of the three years. And, it, and worse still, it was stop-start as well with injuries. So many things that I learned in that three-year period stood me in good stead, you know, for later on. But in truth, you know, you've, you've lost another chunk of your footballing life. Um, so I always felt as, as if I was playing catch-up. Some things that you learn as a 16, you know, 17-year-old, I was still learning them at, 20, at 24 because I'd not been in that environment, you know, so that was difficult to adjust to. So believing in yourself and knowing that you can do it is, is massive. It takes you a long way. Radio WDON commentator Mikey T is with us. Mm. He'll remember you playing in Europe for Norwich City, I mean, knocking out Bayern Munich uh, and then going on and making Premier League history. Mikey, what do you remember of, of this man playing at Norwich City? Well, I mean, you mentioned that game at um, Everton. The reason I remember it quite clearly, because obviously it would have been on match of the day anyway, but Wimbledon weren't playing on that Saturday. It was the 25th of September, 93. We played on our game on, that was on the Monday night um, to QPR on Sky. Um, I was watching Grandstand, I think, and then the video printer was coming through, and I don't know if it was Des Lyon, if he knocked it on the head by then, but just seeing all these scores coming through, and then Ikoku 1, Ikoku 2, 3, and I thought, oh, he's doing well for himself, you know, and then hitting four, and I think, um, yeah, the first player to score four goals in a game, and under the Premier League branding, yeah. I think um, Graham Sharp had scored four for Oldham against Luton, I think just before the Premier League started, but... And then taking off from there and then, of course, scoring against Vitesse Arnhem. I think you were injured against possibly Bayern Munich. And then you had a stint in the San Siro, didn't you? Taking on Bergkamp and Sosa and Bergami and Zenga in the second leg, didn't you? So really heady days. And compared to when I saw you, I think, at Fulham a few months before on a Tuesday night when you were playing for Bournemouth, I think I'm just thinking the, the absolute meteoric <laughs> yeah. rise must have been uh, absolutely astounding for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a journey that I don't know if people they dream about it but nobody plans in that kind of detail because no one knows you know you just as a kid you know you grow up you know you want to do whatever particular sport football tennis 
you know, uh, rugby, whatever it is, track and field. To start with, you're having fun. And then the older you get and you get into the professional environment, it doesn't stop being fun, but it becomes more of a job, more of a lifestyle. It, it becomes professional, which is what it is, you know. So it can be hard to enjoy the ride, especially if you're not being successful or even worse. So, you know, you know, you, you know you're injured, you're not able to do what you yeah, want to do or not being picked. Keep a roof over your head and yeah. your and everything. So all those things, you know, all those things play into it. And that's why sometimes you look at athletes and they don't seem to be enjoying their work. And sometimes they're not. <laughs> no, living the dream, isn't it? It's really? a simple thing, yeah. You know, but to get to, you know, to get to those heights in a short space of time for me was was great. But also, I never thought about it much at the time. I still don't know. I still don't much now, really, unless you guys ask me. <laughs> but of course, to get to those kind of levels, the amount of hard work you would have had to put in, and you say the training and the dedication, and making it the, the main focus of life. I mean, and then obviously seeing it come to fruition in such a spectacular way. Yeah, you miss out on a lot. I wouldn't call it sacrifice because you're doing stuff that you don't feel as as is as important as as what you love. So I don't see it as as, as a sacrifice. I see it as um, as making choices. And yeah, you know, there's lots that goes into it. Lots that is boring and dull and hard work and painful that the fans never see, never appreciate. It would be good to go in, you know, behind the scenes, a life of a, of a professional athlete and see what he or she goes through away from the cameras, away from the training ground, away from the match day, uh, track and field day, whatever, at Wimbledon, football or the tennis and just see sometimes just how boring their life is and how mundane it can become and how difficult it is, you know, to keep your spirits up when things around you seem great, you know, but, you know, that's not always the case. Mike Walker leaves to go to Everton. Mm. How much does that affect you? I was really disappointed. Yeah, I really like Mike. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was tough because I'd only been there. Uh, when did I sign? March '93, and then Mike left in the January, I think, of '94. So when somebody puts a lot of faith in you, and brings you from lower leagues up to a Premier League club, you know that is doing really well at the time. Then you feel as if you know they trust you. Mike was a very no nonsense, straightforward sort of guy. He simplified the game. I think he gave a lot of confidence to experienced players in particular. Knew that not to overmanage them. I was 26, 27 by then, so I appreciated that. And it's difficult then when somebody who's placed a lot of faith in you, who's decided that you know you can be one of their leading players, moves on. You know, but that's life, and I wish Mike well. Um, and yeah, you know, things didn't work out as well after after he left. But certainly, he was he was a good guy to work with. Yeah. October 1994, and you arrive at Sellers Park to play for Wimbledon it's a transfer fee of a million pounds let's find out what's going on in the world at that time it was Grant I don't know he should have been back ages ago it was like Phil was a nice side of Grant without the other stuff I think that's why I fell in love with him I even thought things would work out once when Grant was in prison and me and Phil were together all the time now let's have a look at the top ten at number 10, shaking it up, yeah, that's R. Kelly with She's Got That Vibe. At number 9, Welcome to Tomorrow, thanks very much, that's Snap featuring Summer. Number 8, Anonymous, no, sorry, Lisa Logan, Stay, I Missed You. Number 7, Cigarettes and Alcohol, that's from Oasis. At number 6, we've got Michelle Gale to start off the show tonight, and that's Sweetness. 
Hey now, girls just want to have fun, yeah, us boys too. Thanks very much, Cindy Lawford. Number four, it's take the Orion in for a service, it's always Bon Jovi. Number three, she knocked off Wet Wet Wet, thanks, Saturday night, Wickfield. And at number two, is it UB40? No, it isn't. It's Pato Bantwood, baby, come back. And that can mean only one thing. You know it, I know it, these lots certainly know it. For the second week, take that our top of the pops. Out. What? You're poison, Tanya. Always were, and always will be. I was a fool to have ever given you a second chance. I want you out of here, now. And I never want to see your evil little face in my pub ever again. You know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they get the metric system. They don't know what the quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. October's only bright yeah, spark was saved well. for the end. In front of a crowd of 8,200, Ethan Koku set out to wreak revenge on the club that had decided that he was surplus to requirements. So, you arrive at Wimbledon. Did you know your time at Carrow Road was coming to an end? One word, yes. Why? Well, going back to where Mike left, which was the January, I think, of 94. And it's number two at the time was John Dean. For some reason, I never got on with with him at all. Of course, I didn't do anything wrong. You know. <laughs> you know, you, sometimes, you know, you, there's just not a good feel, a good chemistry between you and the head coach, the manager, or the, you know, second in command, or one of the coaches, or the whole staff, you know, especially if if, if they don't buy you. So Michael left, and, you know, John Dean, I, I think anyway, you know, took a, and I maybe a bit of a dislike, you know, to me, for whatever reason. Um, and I could see that things probably weren't going to work out too well. I think he might have taken me out of the team to start with, so immediately I knew that you know things may turn rocky. But it was early days; it was the end of January, whatever it was. And then I went away to play for Nigeria, Cup of Nations in '94 in Tunisia, which we won, which was great. So I missed a few games, so that that makes it more difficult for you to come back and reestablish yourself. So I was sort of in and out the side between then and the end of the season, and then from pre-season in the '94 '95 season, I knew that you know things weren't. Things weren't looking rosy, as they say, and I went in. We had a we had a chat in his office. We agreed to disagree, and then within about two, three weeks, I was off. So, no surprise. What was the first contact you had with this football club? Who was the first person you spoke to, and how did it evolve that you potentially could become a Wimbledon player? Well, the first contact with Wimbledon was uh, about 1989. Ron Stewart. Ron Stewart, you know Ron Stewart? I remember Swart, Ronnie Swart, or I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname, but yeah. well-known chief scout, yeah. Yeah. So that was, I wrote a letter to see if I could get a trial at Wimbledon. And what did he, they say? He politely wrote back and said, um, that's not the way, uh, what did he say? Thanks for your letter. F and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but as you know, we have a full complement of playing staff. Wimbledon were in the first division then. And Just I, won the FA Cup? I, not, I wasn't even playing non-league. 
So I think that was around about the time that I might have made the call to Tottenham Mitcham and to Sutton. <laughs> so the next club I thought is local is Wimbledon. I didn't even know that Wimbledon really had a football. Well, I did, but not really registered. I actually wasn't watching much football in mid to late 80s, to be honest. I knew Wimbledon won the FA Cup beating Liverpool because Liverpool's my team. So I wasn't particularly enamoured with Wimbledon anyway to start with, let's be honest. Uh, but then I thought, you know, OK, well, I, I sort of looked up the history a little bit. I thought Wimbledon are quite a small club. Uh, maybe I can just rock up and have a trial kind of thing. So I thought, what the hell? I couldn't get their phone number, so I wrote a letter, as you did in the old days. You know, people wrote, kind of thing. I make myself to seem quite ancient now, no? Um, so Ron politely wrote back, blah, blah, blah. Said that we can't do that, but I wish you all the best in your career. But he kept the letter, I think, for a while. So when I eventually came back to him, well, then he found the letter. So Sam, her mum, used to tease him, say, see, you cost me a million pounds. You know, if you just allowed him to come and train at the football club when he was much younger, wouldn't I should sack you, all that kind of stuff. So that was quite funny, the story. Uh, but anyway, fast forward to only five years later, actually, isn't it? Yeah. You know, which is not which is no time at all. And uh, how did that happen? I think I saw something in in the newspaper at first when I was at Norwich. That was without me or my agent at the time having any contacts with Wimbledon. So obviously the two clubs had been talking and had more or less agreed a deal. I remember a few of the Norwich lads. Are you off? Are you leaving? I said, not to my knowledge. No. I knew that if anything if anything was open or if there was a possibility, I may have been interested. But also I knew that there was, I would have been quite happy to stay at Norwich. I knew my poor start to that season was down to mental fatigue as opposed to anything. And I thought, well, okay, once I'm playing, I'll be back in the side. I wasn't overly concerned, but we'd had a long summer. I was at the World Cup in the US with Nigeria, come back, gone straight into pre-season training. I should have probably asked for two weeks off. Did a couple of weeks training, it was a little bit flat, then I asked to take a few days after the lads went to Romania, I think, for pre for a little preceding trip. I went to Holland and to Belgium, I think we had a few days there. Then I came back, I asked to be excused for a week. I don't know, maybe John Dean saw that as a sign that I wasn't particularly committed at all. I just, I just needed to recharge my batteries. So in truth, I could have probably done with an extra week or so. So the start of the season was just flat for me. I felt flat, didn't feel good about uh, the situation. So, you know, things escalate and before you know it, you're on the move. Um, anyway, so that was in the papers, I think. I saw it. The lads were asked, a few lads were asking me. You know, I thought I was I was quite a popular member of the group. You know, I don't think, you know, they wanted me to leave the lads. And I've, I was I was great with them. They were great with me. And we've remained in touch with the quite I've remained in touch with a lot of, a lot of the boys there. A good group. Uh, but then, you know, I said no. And then all of a sudden, within a few days, you know, my agent called me. Or we had a chat. He said, look, Wimbledon and Norwich think they've agreed a fee. And then we had a chat. And then before he knew it, I thought, you know what, I need to play. I don't want to be hanging around where I'm not wanted kind of thing. And my attitude was, oh, OK, I'll, pu- I'll prove you wrong. That was it. I was gone. But you mentioned uh, you just had to probably touch upon it yourself there, everything about things not maybe not going as quite as well, domestically speaking, at Norwich. But then, of course, as you say, in the middle of all that, selected for the Nigeria World mm. Cup squad. You then played against England in the, the friendly, I think, uh, coming off of the late great Rashidi Yakini. Um, and then, of course, you had the move to Wimbledon in the midst of it. So was it a bit of a sort of... A, kind of play with your play with your mind a little bit. It's a little bit weird that you had the all things maybe domestically at Norwich towards the close of your time there, maybe not going particularly well, but you must have been saying to yourself, Well, I'm getting the big props and the big love on an international basis. So yeah. that kept you upbeat and confident that it all would work out well potentially. Yeah, it was a funny it was a funny period really, you know, from the time Mike Walker left up until you know, the time I signed for Wimbledon really. I know those yeah, it was it was almost non stop games, non stop football, you know, as I said, you know, Cup of Nations coming back finishing the season then not uh, then having no break going straight to training with Nigeria we had a base training base in the Netherlands and then going to the World Cup and then back so yeah it was 
it was a lot to it was a lot to get used to after coming from Bournemouth a year earlier. So when you think about it now, you look back and you think how players are managed a lot better um, all round, and how players manage themselves with the help, you know, the whole you know the whole assistance of football clubs and on a personal level as well. And then I think it's easier for people to deal with, but it's still quite a lot, you know, to go through. So no surprise that things weren't particularly well on the pitch. And then, of course, you know, that has an adverse effect on, on you emotionally as well. So it was then, good to get to move and then to move on. And of course, it's slightly, uh, it must have been a very satisfying end when you actually moved to Wimbledon and then on uh, home debut in front of the Sky cameras, you get the only goal against Norwich. So you talk about proving them wrong. And I think uh, that must have been a real wake-up call for them and maybe let them sit in their heads in their hands at potentially what they'd uh, let slip through their fingers. Yeah, you know, I remember coming into training. We so we played Forest, the, my, my debut, the debut yeah. and we played Liverpool away. Liverpool and lost spanking three 0 was <laughs> yeah, it something like that three yeah. 0 But I remember coming into training on the Monday, and I just felt extremely calm, and that was a good time for the weekend. Although it was six days away, so a few times I can remember in my career where I came into training either the day before the game or a few days before the game, and I just felt calm all round, knowing that. There was going to be a good result at the weekend. So from that one, I remember being really calm. I'd not scored. I was a bit. You can be a little bit anxious, especially as a strike. You don't score, kind of thing. You want to, you know, impress everybody yourself, and to, you know, to get the fans on your side. But yeah, I do remember, you know, the Monday night uh, or the Monday Tuesday and all that build up. Just I was quite calm about everything. I remember, I think Terry Burden said something like, "Before the game, you know, you haven't got to prove anything." I said, "Yeah, I know." kind of thing <laughs> and then yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the Forest and Liverpool games I mean to be fair too I mean in those two matches we were loads of injuries outplayed. well yeah and the injuries on the likes of Wown, Colin Moore Bohinan were giving us a tough time at Forest and then I think Robbie Fowler Steve McManaman and Co and John Barnes I think were still there so two tough away games to start with so again if you didn't get the, the right service or whatever then obviously that's something that could perhaps be you know one of those things you know you understand it against a team who was maybe a little bit out of form at the time but then of course came in on the Sunday and the, the Norwich game and then home debut of course was as good a time mm. as any really to really uh, embed yourselves in the minds of the uh, the home supporters yeah I always think players when they go to a new club or young kids when they're trying to get into the first team at like 18, 19 or whatever or some younger you have a window of opportunity with which to prove or to show people just what you're capable of especially for young kids and, that, and your window of opportunity may only be five minutes at the end of a dead rubber game at the end of a long season where the team is not doing particularly well and all of a sudden the coach throws in this 18, 19 year old kid and you know, he scores a cracking goal or he, you know, a couple of fantastic balls, crosses the ball or whatever, a few assists, all that kind of thing. People remember, wow, did you see that young kid or did you see that kid who, see that guy play who thought he was finished? He's yeah. 32, he's come towards, he looks revitalised. So you take those moments. I knew that was a moment for me to turn my whole season around or get it up and running because it was only October. And like I said, I felt good about myself all week and I knew that I was going to score. And the Norwich lads knew that I was going to score as well, <laughs> you know, because they told me afterwards, you see, you I won't swear. You know, they thought if it, if it was one person, that, and that's what they were dreading the whole week. They said Chief's going to score. We don't know whether they win or not, but he's going to score. No doubt he's going to score. So we laughed about it afterwards briefly. <laughs> anyway, in terms of arriving at Wimbledon, um, there was a big John Fashnu shaped hole in the squad. You're a very cool person. I mean, I I I don't know you. We we've never met before, but automatically I'm thinking this guy's cool. He's confident, but he's he's cool about it. Was it a case of of trying to play away that that moniker of being the fashion replacement and being FN Okoku not uh, an inch completely different players so no. you, but yeah you were here to be FN Okoku weren't you yeah I never thought about fashion you know for one second I never compared myself you know to anybody I wouldn't want any, you know it's, it's like when people say you know it's a new Pele Zico in 1970s what a load of rubbish 
People talk about the new Maradona Messi, what a load of rubbish, he's just Messi. You know, they talk about the new Zidane, talk about the new this one, and you can talk with anybody. Why? You know, you, you, you can't be the replica. Even an identical twin couldn't play the way that their twin does. So, trying to fill any hole was never on my mind, despite what, what, what the papers wrote at the time. Um, and also, I don't, think, I don't think Joe Kinnear looked at it that way either. You know, Joe never talked about what we did before and how we should play, just focused on what we have now. And it's where we go forward. And um, I think good players, you know, focus on themselves, don't think about too much about the future. That's why some players are able to wear the old number seven, old number nine on their back of a legendary player. They think it's just a number. You know, it's the crowd and the media who, who build up this thing about, you know, the new... The new uh, George Best at Man United, or the new number seven at Liverpool, the new Kevin Keegan, or the new Doug Leash. But Suarez won the number seven, I think, you know, for Liverpool. I think he's arguably their greatest ever play in terms of performances, not the most successful in terms of trophies, that's clear. And he only won one, but he's probably the best player I've ever seen in, in a Liverpool shirt. And that's saying something, you know. So he was able to wear that number with, with no fear. So I think, you know, players, I think more and more players look at it that way. And certainly I did. Did you feel any pressure? With the price tag, did you feel any pressure no. at all coming in? No, a million pounds. No, even then it, it wasn't much, was it? Um, I don't know what the record then was about three and a half million, maybe between UK clubs. I mean, John, John Scales had gone for three and a half million pounds in the summer, so it was a million pounds. But even then, oh, there you go. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the nineties. It's, it's still a million pounds in the nineties at a club that didn't have huge resources. Yeah, maybe for Wimbledon it was seen as a as a big thing, but I don't remember anybody ever ever talking about it and. I paid it no mind at all, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll just interrupt you there. Just to remember, we'd also just picked up Mick Harford from Coventry for £50,000 as well <laughs> near the start of the season. So, you know, Mick's a, always been bargain-based. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll a, tell him that anyway. A, Sorry, a, Mick. A, a, no, a certain, I'm going to give Lebanese uh, gentleman might well have been saying, oh, well, you know, good business. We've, yeah. we've got rid of uh, Fashion, I think it was about 1.3 million or thereabouts, and then 50000 he's brought in this uh, uh, war horse um, um, journeyman, shall we say? But still, obviously, did well for Wimbledon. But mm. uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, how, how did you get on with him, Mick? Big great. Guy. I think people are terrified of him, but the ones that don't know him are really. He's a he's, think. He's a yeah, lovely, he's a, lovely. He's a real decent guy, Mick, yeah. and um, I've got a lot of time for him. He was here that game, you know, we were talking about before we came on air the game against Coventry in the League Cup yeah. a few weeks ago. That I left just before the end of the game, so I missed the two goals. And Mick was here, you know, we said we had a chat at half-time and, and, and didn't see him at full-time. So, yeah, you know, it's, it was a, a good mix of lads, a great a great room full of character. We're also good players. People tend to look at the character whenever I come across people who never don't know much about football. Some of them, I think. Some of them talk about, you know, Wimbledon and different clubs. And the first thing they mention is character and uh, team spirit, which is great. You know, you need that, but you get nowhere if your players are crap, do you? So you need good players. And the bottom line is that when I was at Wimbledon, we always had good players. And then the character and the personality will come through after that. that that's part of you being a good player, of course. But they always like to emphasise, I suppose that goes back to the early and mid-80s, that this uh, ragtag you know, outfit and you know, misfits and all that here and that. But they overlook the fact that we had lots of good players here. Going to places like Anfield, going to St James's Park and what's Arsenal's old ground, Highbury, that's the one. <laughs> no one was daunted by that. You know, we won everywhere. You've done so well to avoid a certain term which I'm going to use. Um, you probably expected this question, but when I say the phrase crazy gang, what does it mean to you? It's a nice little moniker, isn't it? Because people know straight away who you're talking about. 
So for a club, I think it's something that they should always use, that they should always be proud of. But as I said, you have to then remind people that behind that crazy name, there was a lot of good stuff going on. And that's the reason why the club remained in the top flight for between, what, 1986 to 2000. Now, for a club the size of Wimbledon, that's monumental, isn't it? No disrespect, let's see if Brentford you know, can do that. Let's see if Brighton can do that, who are flying right now. Many clubs who've been much bigger than Wimbledon have come and gone. Not lots of them didn't have anywhere near, or don't have not had, you know, anywhere near the length of stay. So that says something about what was going on. And the bottom line is that there were lots of good players here, through all through that time. Otherwise, you don't survive. You know, you get relegated. So the spirit was fostered in the old days, if you like. But then it was it was carried on. It was moulded and it was advanced and it was improved upon. You know, consistently with a level of play. Um, yeah. But it's nice to give names, you know, to things, isn't it? It's, it's how people become instantly, on, or things, or you know, en- uh, entities become instantly re- recognisable or rememberable. Also, when you mentioned about the uh, say ragtag or whatever you want, to, whatever the media would have portrayed the club in those days, and you know, signing you know Dave Besson for a thousand pounds, Vinnie James eight thousand pounds. But when you then see in the immediate aftermath of the FA Cup final, Besson and Thorn for close on a million pounds, leaving mm. Dennis Wise one point six. A couple of years later, Terry Phelan. You know Keith Curl in excess of two million as well, and you mentioned that again. Just underlines your point about that maybe you know have a few pranks on each other and cut up each other's trousers and set fire to each other's cars or whatever. But uh, as you say, beneath that, a real you know real wealth of um, talent, and again reflected in some of those transfer fees that we subsequently saw. Yes, still you need uh, good scouts and good coaching, and Wimbledon had that. You know, Joe was I think a very smart coach. Terry Burton was uh, great, uh, great on on the training field. As good as Roy Hodgson, I work with Roy Hodgson as well. Terry Burton was excellent. So some good, some good coaches that I've worked with, and Terry, like I said, you know, here was, I think, you know, one of the very best around around about that time. Do you feel perhaps he didn't get the credit he deserved with, of course, Joe Kinnear having come in in early '92 and turned the club around after the somewhat disastrous spell under Peter Whiff, and then staved off relegation, and then paved the way for us to be founder members of the the Premier League mm. and obviously taking credit Joe Kinnear Yellow and Blue Army etc but Terry Burton is widely believed just didn't receive a lot of the recognition and was a perhaps more key part than it was often portrayed his involvement in the uh, backroom setup. Oh absolutely but within the football industry believe me Terry is, uh, was and is still very respected for sure um, yeah I think the lads enjoyed working with him he was here for a long time I know that he was offered a chance to go and work with Glenn Hoddle in England and and the club wouldn't let him. That I can assure you that didn't please him because he told me so. <laughs> so, you know, the chance to go and work with the best English players at the time would have been great for him and it would have probably benefited, you know, Wimbledon as well. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons that led to his departure as well um, in the way it did, but I don't know too much about that. Certainly, I know when I was here and he was offered the chance, I think, you know, that was something that would have been beneficial, you know, for everybody all around, but between, I'm not sure who exactly, but, he didn't go and I think you know that was something that you know didn't sit with him well. I spoke to Michael Appleton yesterday, the, the chart manager, he spoke to me mm. about his, his time at Wimbledon on loan and he talked about the characters that, that were here and I mean you talk about team spirit and you, you lean on it a lot but he said he was desperate to stay. He, he was on loan <laughs> from Manchester United and desperate to stay. Yeah, I mean the group was phenomenal. The, the names, you, you look at it, Robbie L, Marcus Gale was there, Jason Newell was there, Oyvind Leonardson was there. You had a, a very young, fresh-faced Neil Ardley as well. Yeah. What was that dressing room like, managed by Joe? Could he switch quite quickly between being one of the lads, arm around the shoulder, having a laugh, having a drink together after a win, to someone who's serious and is, is preparing the team for, for battle? Yeah, I think Joe did that very well. He was Joe remained 
aloof quite a lot, which is important, I think, for the head coach to keep that distance, even though you he was involved with with quite a few of the jokes and all that kind of stuff. But Joe always, I think, maintained a, a good distance. He always knew exactly what you couldn't and you couldn't say. And uh, he wasn't around on the training ground as much um, as maybe some modern day coaches are. So we might see Joe on a, I don't know if, if we played on a Saturday or whatever, it was on a Sunday, probably wouldn't see Joe until a Tuesday at, at the earliest. <laughs> and never sure you'd see him on the Thursday and absolutely on, on a Friday. So I think that's something that the, the players certainly used to, when I was playing, you know, didn't always felt the need for the man in charge to be there. So when he came and he said what he said, that had some impacts, certainly the day before the game and absolutely on match day as well. Um, and then if you've got a more than capable coach, as Terry Burton was, and to be honest, I don't think you need too strong voice like that, as long as the message through the coach is from the manager and then all's good. Oh, it used to be like that. I'm not sure how things work now, but certainly I think it works. And Joe was very good, I think, at managing people. He had, there was a little bit of carrot, a bit of stick as well, so he knew which players he could have probably uh, talked to with a little bit more or use a bit more industrial language with and it sort of it didn't make too much of a difference. Younger players, you probably have to be a little bit more careful how you how you spoke to them then. And uh, it took me a while, you know, to get used to that. But to be honest, you know, not that long, about two, three months, when I sort of felt I was used to the way that Joe operated. There's a real array of forwards there as well. I mean, yourself, Mick. Joe John, loved a lot of forwards. Marcus Scale. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big Carl was there as well. Carl came later on. Yeah, yeah Carl came later on. But was he always a unit? Big Carl, yeah. Oh, gosh, you see him now. He's he like William Perry, the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him last week, actually, Carl, yeah. I see, I see Carl quite often, so yeah, he's, he's always big Carl. He was always big Carl, so Carl came about, I don't know, about 98 or something. Carl yeah. Hero. Yeah, he came about 98, and uh, good lad, Carl. Yeah, um, but the guys who were there when I signed, so Gene Holds were there, Mick was here, Andy Clark, Marcus Gale, Gary Blissett. I think John Goodman had just arrived as well. John Goodman Bill came Wolf, a little Kenny bit after me, yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, actually, not long after me, John. Yeah, just yeah, probably that. Two, three, or three, three or four weeks back, uh, Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we we had an array for what Joe always liked to keep his options open and to have... I always felt it was a key part of the game, which it is, or was, and is today, is that if you if you have a lot of people who can make things happen and score goals, you always got a chance of winning games. And nothing's changed in that regard. Who's the chief? I'm sort of... Uh, chief by default my dad was a chief a proper traditional chief back in in Nigeria and um, so when I signed for Bournemouth a good friend of mine George Lawrence so my dad came down in traditional gear not for when I signed I think a few months after his first time he'd been to Bournemouth so he came down with my mum or might have come with my mum or one of my brothers so my dad was dressed in traditional outfit so the lads were asking me why why is your dad dressed like that so well first of all this is how we dress back home in Nigeria, I mean, this is how most people dress on a regular basis, so it's no big deal. But then they found out it was a chief who was wearing some of his, of his coral beads kind of thing. So I had to explain all that. I said, like, oh, chief. So then George started calling me junior chief, but that's a bit too long-winded, isn't it? So in the end, he just went from junior chief to chief. There we go. Has it stuck since? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's followed me around. I just told him, don't call me chief in front of my dad. It's not the dumb thing, yeah. So they kept it quiet. <laughs> F-N. No, no. <laughs> Do you know what? There's a character from, from the Wimbledon FC era that I, I'm fascinated by. And I really want to ask you about him. And it's Stanley Reid. Because oh, I, Stanley, saw, I Stanley, saw a yeah. video of, mm. of the former chairman 
post victory. There's quite a famous video on, on social media. Lord Reed to well, us, as we used to Lord call Reed, him. Yeah, yeah, just rolling around the changing room singing a song. Yeah, um, and you just see everyone naked, really. <laughs> and he's yeah. just walking around, just slapping everyone on the back and amongst other places without the superimposed black bits of sort of strips across the yeah, no, 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 no censorship, no, no blurring of anything. You can, you can see everything, but what a lovely fellow. What a character. Mm. He kind of summed it up, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. It's, uh, so when I joined 94, he was, Stanley was part of the furniture and and had been for, I don't know how many years he'd been involved with the club since when, late 70s? Yeah, during the 70s, I think. Yeah. Something like that. So yeah, he was, you know, so I thought, I thought, who's this old guy anyway? As usual, he would come over, introduce himself, I'm so-and-so, I'm Stanley Reid, I'm the chairman of this proud grand football club. Blah, blah, you're thinking, who's, who's this old guy? Then you find out, a lot about him the lads the way the lads used to talk fondly about him realised that everybody loved him great amount of respect the lads really used to look after him he used to come on pre-season tours the players would uh, look after him would take him out everywhere introduce him to anybody who was around uh, to fans and all kind of he was sense of attention he'd be right in the midst of what's going on having a drink having a meal with everybody and uh, and he loved it absolutely loved it he absolutely loved being with the players he was he never felt, or he never felt as if he couldn't come in and he'd give us a bit of time after the game, win or lose, or in fact, if we won, he'd be in straight away, you know, as Joe's, you know, saying what he's saying after the game, Stanley would be coming in. And Do you remember the song? Absolutely, yeah. Come on, lads, here we are. Great, absolutely brilliant. Come on, here we are again. Happy as can be. All good pals and jolly good company. Never mind the weather. It's Here a song again, that, happy as can be, all good yeah, and jolly good company. It's taken from, I think yeah. it's taken from the first time. There's the the Arsenal team from 1930. Yes, used to sing that's it. right. Yeah, yeah. Herbert Chapman. Yeah, I think he got them singing it. Yeah, so Lord Reed must have box in the background or something. Yeah, so Lord Reed must have taken it from there. And obviously, back in the 30s, he was he was a bit of a boy. And um, he told me a great story once uh, about how he was supposed to be going to the 1924 Olympics in Paris, was it? And he was like a junior bodybuilder then. But anyway. He, I think he might have had a few quid at the time. He had this motorbike and he was showing off to a couple of young women, as he said. So I was showing off to a couple of young women, trying to do wheelies, all that kind of stuff. Fell off my bicycle and broke my hand, he said. And so he missed out on going to the Olympics because of that. Mad. So he said, oh. no, and then and he looks at you with a little twinkle and he says, nobody likes a show off. <laughs> <laughs> so great stories like that. He was friends with, uh, he was friends with William Hill, you know, the, uh, the bookmaker. Yeah. Good friends with him. Yeah. So he used to tell us a few good stories like that, you know. You know, some I could tell, some I couldn't tell. And so, yeah, he 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 just loved being around young guys, young young people, the team spirit and everything. Fantastic. The only horrible thing that we ever did to Lord Reed is he used to come to the training ground, and because we obviously knew with his hair and the lads would start to whistle and whine, and he started just in like that, <laughs> as if you know, just like two or three people, and he started going like that. Lord Reed, can you hear us? He go. We used to do that almost all the time. Somebody go, don't do that, you're wicked. So. Picking up interference. Yeah, picking up interference. Yeah. Can we post that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, you can do if you want. Yeah, you know. That'd be great. I know Jimmy Talbot was in the 
chair it was in a boardroom after a game, whatever, a Liverpool game. And uh, I think, first of all, he came in without a tie. Then he was told, I think Lord Reed told him, you have to wear a tie. And someone said, it's Jimmy Tarbuck. And he said, well, um, came over and Jimmy Tarbuck was introduced to him. He said, uh, um, I, hear, I, hear you are a, I hear you are a comedian, something like that he said to me. He said, yes, yes, sir, I am a comedian. He said, well, with regards to being funny, I'll be the judge of that, something like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and everybody laughed around him. You know. he was, uh, he'd always have these little one-liners. He's just like... Was he the conduit between you guys and Sam? No, I wouldn't say that, no. No, no, Sam, nothing that Sam couldn't say or do around the football club. So Sam just did what he did. But Sam was also very good at giving time and space around the team on match day. Sometimes, you, you know, you wouldn't see Sam at all after games, you win, lose or draw. In fact, he hardly put his head in, in a dressing room as far as I can recall. Um, you'd probably see him more at, at the training ground, actually, yeah. What was the mentality like in the team? Because you look at the riches of, of the Premier League, obviously look the, the injection of the Sky money coming in. Um, but this was a Wimbledon, still ground chairman across the Palace, mm. training mm. on the A3. This is a club that didn't have the same resources as, as some of the, the bigger boys, the Manchester United, the Arsenals. Chelsea had money at that yeah. time through Matthew Harding. Was it kind of us versus them and we've got to work extra hard and we've got to, we've got to show who we are? To be honest, I never thought about it that way at all. Not for one second. Couldn't ignore what people used to write, because that's what they did. Um, but it never concerned me. Because I always felt that when inferior, you know, to lots of clubs that you mentioned. Me as a player or my teammates, there were certain advantages that they had that we didn't have. They were playing at better grounds. But the ground didn't make much of a difference as far as I was concerned. The training ground would have been nice to have been uh, a really good one I think that's where I think that's Sam's biggest mistake is that he didn't invest in that that's something that he could have done a lot more easily tell us about it, the old training ground I will do in a minute yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, English, I, don't. I think that's something that he could have done that would have been a proper legacy for him I think that's something that I'm not sure whether he cares about it or not that's, that's certainly something that would mark him down in my eyes is that you come to the football club now and there's nothing to say that that he was part of the club is there as far as I know, is there? No, I don't know. Not, exactly. not, not given know. the events of obviously selling the shares initially in 1997 and then obviously disappearing off the scene and the, the shenanigans regarding the old Plough Lane site and selling it to Safeways and getting the covenant rescinded as well with the local yeah, council, you, which only permitted sporting activity. So there's that, a lot of hurt. And that's the reason, because he didn't do right by the club, in my opinion. If you do something that the club can say, well, okay, we fell out in the end, but actually, you know, you built us, you, you bought the land where the club now plays well, the, the club trains that for the next 50 years. It was at least 125 years or whatever. So he left the club nothing. And for someone who was so, who was instrumental in bringing the club from where it was to where it is now, or up until 2000, so when he, he sold the club, or, you know, there's some reminder to say, this is what I did. But that's his fault, really. It's not the clubs, is it? It's not the fans. It, it wasn't a place. So the fans used to protest at the time, the back end of when I was there, 97, 98. I was always with them because I thought, you know, you guys I understand that people say you should be supporting the team, but it's your right to protest as what you see is the failing of the ownership. So I was 100%, you know, behind. It didn't affect me in terms of player. As far as I was concerned, noise was noise and that was good, you know. And uh, so I never saw that as, as a negative. And one of the reasons I signed for Wimbledon in 94 was that I actually, well, I didn't want to leave Norwich, but it was time to go. I couldn't see any good future in the short term anyway and then John Dean left about five months after that so uh, but was that I looked at the roster I thought okay 
I've played against these guys before. I know there's lots of good players there. I looked at all the players that were injured, actually, when I signed. And then I thought, we lost the first two games, and I thought, shit, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but then also, I had faith in myself. I knew that I could play a big part in turning the club around. And I thought, OK, get three or four of these players back. Robbie Earl was injured. A couple of others, people in Dean Halsworth were injured. I thought, get these players back and it'll be a different story. So I'm not sure when I signed if we were bottom of the table. I think after we lost the first two games, we certainly were. And then you look, used to look at the table and on CFAX and all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, you're looking up at everybody else. But then I thought, no, 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 things will change here. Things will change. And once I scored my first goal, actually, you know, you know things did change very quickly. So I thought, yeah, you know, I've made a good choice in the end. And you move on from there. So... Inferiority complex never came into it. It can it can affect a lot of people, but when you see what's happened at a club before, and then you see what you can do yourself, and you you know you try and put a, a positive spin on things, and hopefully things will turn around, which is which is how it did. What was your relationship like with the supporters? I thought it was quite good, but you'll have to ask them. No, I'm asking you. <laughs> what, what was it like for you? From I mean, my point of look, view, we've had so much love yeah. for, for you, and mm. and. Believe me, the messages we've had from what the USA, the USA mm. saying, I can't wait for this, yeah. this episode of the podcast. So, you know, we've had loads of questions. We'll get into some fan questions in a minute. But yeah. what do you feel like your relationship was like when you were on that pitch, when you put on that shirt? Yeah, I think I think you know if if the fans like you or not. Um, e- e- easier for a goal scorer to make himself or to ingratiate himself with the fans because you could have the worst game and you can pop one in, in the 81st minute or 90th minute and people will forget about some of the me- mediocre stuff that you served up for most of the game. They won't completely ignore it, you know, they will know whether you're a good player or not, but certainly you can turn things very, very quickly. But I think in general, you know, I played for myself first, and then I knew that if I played for myself and played well, and then anywhere I went, then the fans would like me. So I took it that way, and the rest I knew would come. Um, so I think all the clubs I played at, I think I gave my, I gave my best. I didn't always play my best, because that's not possible. Well, certainly there was no lack of effort. Mikey, one more before we get... Yeah, I mean, regarding again, the relationship with the fans, I, mean, I think in the five years that you were, you were there, I, mean, I think generally players are kind of defined not only by their individual capabilities and some of the, obviously the great goals you scored and some of them you know, outside the penalty area, like Newcastle, was one at Sunderland where we won 3-1, which was a mm. superb finish past Lionel Perez, I think it was. But um, equaliser at Huddersfield, of course, in the FA Cup, which produced the, the biggest mass bundles in the aisles of seating, I think I still <laughs> recall to this day. It was but last minute. It was indeed. It's yeah, allowed. About three yeah. or four minutes into stoppage time. Even Tony Gubber couldn't believe it in the in the commentary. <laughs> he had to get himself a cup of tea or something. But um, not just from an <clears throat> individual perspective, but also how fans see you with regards to a particular era, a particular side. For example, the side that reached the two semi-finals in 96-97, um, which, of mm. course, you're an integral part of, of course, scoring it. You know Chelsea when we won four uh, two, getting uh, one of the goals at Bolton in the quarter final of the of, of the League Cup, and again the two semi finals being second in the league at one point as well, and okay petered out obviously due to the, the backlog of fixtures, finished eighth in the end, but a real golden era which the, the Dons fans nowadays still hark back to, and a season in particular we still remember with great fondness and cherish very greatly. Yeah, yeah, they were they were great times, you know, for club of this size, you know, to be fighting right at the top um, as you said you know we started that season great and it petered out in the end you know through the a lot of games that we played and also a small squad and also Joe wasn't I don't think Joe was very good at utilising you know the whole squad and if we had it done I think we would have had a lot of players fresher for those big games come February March and certainly you know the FA Cup final in April against Chelsea so yeah but Joe was very loyal 
people who served him well um, always got a chance, you know, to prove, you know, that you know that they could do a game, which was great if you were playing and you were in a side, which I was. So, uh, but it would be nice to be managed a little bit more smartly over the course of that campaign. Like I said, you know, we could have had a greater impact when it really mattered. So that is it for part one of our chat with Efan Okoku. But don't worry, part two is en route and will be dropping very, very shortly. Make sure you hit subscribe. For that, it will be a cracker. Until then, keep looking out for more from the club across social media. Come on, you dons.